When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to this week's big interview on Battleground Ukraine with me, Patrick Bishop and Saul David. We're doing things a little bit differently this week, so coming up before a powerful interview with an American volunteer in the Ukrainian army is some material we recorded on our journey from Lviv to Kiev with some rather dramatic events from our first morning in the Ukrainian capital. Okay, here we are, day two. Patrick and I are heading up to Kiev. Patrick and I and James, I should say, our producer, are heading up to Kiev on a bit of a rickety old train, passing through some, I mean, how would you describe the landscape, Patrick? Monotonous, I think, is the word. I mean, you, look, you can sort of look out the window for 10 minutes, go and sit down for an hour, and then get up and look out again. It's exactly the same as it was when you last did it. But nonetheless, it's interesting. It's basically very flat, endless fields of grain and oil seed fields, of course, which are very much in the news at the moment because they're not being properly exploited. They're not being able to get the revenue that they depend so much on the Ukrainian economy because of the uh, Russian actions against the uh, the export facilities etc but it's a timeless landscape really isn't it I mean you don't only have to half close your eyes and you're back in the 1940s and of course this is where the, uh, the German invasion came in isn't it along these routes or yeah we're, we're almost exactly on the route that the panzers would have come in 41 heading to uh, Kiev, and uh, I was asking Askold actually yesterday. We had a lovely evening out in the main square in Lviv yesterday at a beautiful cafe with music going on in the background. You'll probably have heard it. And I was asking Askold about the train, and he said this is where the step really begins between Lviv and Kiev, and therefore it's kind of an endless expanse. And it certainly looks that way. I'm reminded, of course, Patrick, going back to the Second World War. Of Manstein's message to his wife when she asked him what the terrain was like and his response was it just swallows you up okay we're sharing our uh, compartment Patrick and I are in one compartment James is in another we're sharing our compartment with them um, two interesting Ukrainian ladies weren't terribly happy to see us because of course it meant they had to share the compartment with us and relinquish one of the lower bunks I'm on the top bunk but I'm also feeling I have to confess a little bit ropey having had one too many vodkas yesterday sort of you know not quite demor pappy but happy to be in Lviv finally in Ukraine uh, and happy actually to realize that the Ukrainians aren't quaking in their boots every time there's an air raid and but anyway those uh, those vodkas are making this trip a little bit longer than it should be i'm trying to write a bit of my new book tunis grad uh, and i suspect i'll have to redo some of those chapters patrick what have you been doing on the route i've been relaxing actually but basically kind of uh, drinking in the scene it is these long train journeys that you've got to be 
local to know how to handle them. You've got to bring your own grub and basically make your own entertainment. And the train itself, I suppose, must be 50 or 60 years old. And uh, it's, it's from a bygone era, but it works very well. You know, it's rattling along at a fair old pace. It gets you there. And people are, are sort of making the most of the trip, actually, you know, socializing, moving around the carriages. Uh, it's all actually rather a sort of pleasant experience. And it does reinforce what Saul was saying about there's a sort of equanimity I think you feel here, don't you, Saul, that, that people are getting on with their lives, they're, they're making uh, sense of the new reality, uh, just doing what they've always done, I suppose. This part of the world has been racked by war, famine, and so it, I suppose that, uh, that breeds a sort of quite a stoical attitude. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the very fact that I'm moaning about a little bit of a hangover and the length of this journey will give you a sense that we're not, you know, we're not, we're not feeling the, the, the panic among a population at war. It is, of course, uh, the country that is under attack, but people are going about their normal business, uh, getting from A to B. We've got a couple of small kids in the compartment next to us. There's kind of no sense that uh, life can't go on as normal. And we were speculating yesterday, actually, Patrick, that it must have been just like this in Britain in the Second World War. And it is quite fascinating if that comparison is accurate, to have a little window into what it must have been like for our parents and grandparents. Okay, we're sitting in the, I suppose you call it the political centre of Kiev. It's our first morning in Kiev. It's a beautiful, sunny, clear morning. Uh, it's a bit fresh earlier on. It's now getting pleasantly warm. Uh, just heard the sirens going, as you can hear. No one seems to be taking the air raid warning very seriously, so we're going to stay put for the time being. I think this is all a of a piece with what we've been seeing since we've been here, which is the, the air, it has to be said, of, of normality. You could be in any, you know, large uh, Central European city, really, until you just cast your eyes around a bit and you see things that remind you that this is very much a society at war. Uh, at one end of the square, just wait for this to die down, At one end of the square, there's a, a grassy bank which is covered in these fluttering flags. Now, these, Saul will tell us what these are, but they are a stark reminder of the, of the human loss that's involved uh, in this struggle that the Ukrainians are engaged in. I mean, we should add, Patrick, that the sound of the air raid siren is probably alarming one or two of our listeners thinking, crikey guys, why don't you just head for the shelter? But as Patrick's already pointed out, none of the locals seem to be particularly concerned. And it's the first siren we've heard since we arrived in Kyiv yesterday afternoon. So that's a, almost a full 12, well, yeah, more than a full 12 hours. Um, the flag's very poignant though, Patrick. I mean, if we can say on the one hand that there's no obvious overt signs of a country at war apart from these air raid sirens, certainly the people don't seem to be doing anything other than leading their lives as normal. But those flags at the end of the Maidan Square, which of course is where the revolution began against the pro-Russian government in 2014, is full of these little fluttering flags in the Ukrainian colors. Actually, there's one, there are one or two Union Jacks, American flags, Georgian flags, 
and they signify um, the fallen heroes of the war. And there are a lot of them. I doubt very much, to be truthful, Patrick, even though the whole bank is covered with these flags, that it's actually the accurate number of people who've fallen, not least because the Ukrainian government is refusing to tell us how many there are. But it's, it's symbolic, of course, of the sacrifice. Yeah, but I think the, the overall picture we're getting is, uh, you can hear that the sounds have now faded away, is that you know, there's this determination that life is going to go on, that this, there is continuity, I think is the message, wouldn't you say, Saul? This is one they're going to win, and that uh, you know, there is a future, a good future, lying in front of them. Exactly right. Um, we imagine, actually, that coming to Kiev, it would feel a little bit more on a war footing. I mean, this, after all, is the centre of government, the centre of the military, uh, the centre of politics. And this, in a way, is the obvious target for the Russians. Uh, on the other hand, as we also know, having spotted them on our way into Rezhov Airport, as we've already mentioned, um, there are Patriot batteries protecting Kiev. So I think that gives an extra layer of confidence to the locals that even when there is an air raid and missiles are potentially on their way, they might not get through. And from the Russian point of view, you know, it's a simple calculation. Why send very expensive missiles which you have a limited number and ever decreasing number of when the chances are most are going to get knocked down only a few of them will get through probably to no great end so i think there's arithmetic of war calculation going on there as well well what next is we've got a number of very interesting meetings set up we'll be bringing you uh, the detail from those we'll be hopefully conducting a few interviews and uh, and describing what we're up to but we've got a packed schedule for the next few days in which we we're hoping to look at all aspects of the war the actual military uh, operations uh, but also what might happen afterwards when ukraine is finally at peace and the massive problem of what to do with all this ordnance that is strewn across the country and interestingly enough patrick not just on the front line so we'll be talking more about that of course we're we're all well aware of how many mines the Russians have put down in their defences in the east, but there are minefields everywhere in this country. Uh, and there's a lot of work that's already ongoing. So we'll be bringing you a little bit more detail about that and other aspects of the conflict. Okay, so slight change of emphasis now. Uh, we were sitting there quite relaxed in the, uh, in the coffee shop and these huge explosions. We can see anti-aircraft uh, up in the air, which is probably a missile being shot down, huge explosion. There's a big puff of white smoke up in the sky. And we're now heading down into the air raid shelter along with the rest of the population of Kyiv by the looks of things. So uh, slight change of emphasis, I think. Heading down the steps now into the, yeah, you can hear more rumbling of, of anti-aircraft fire. Now heading down into the underpass. Okay, we've gathered under the underpass now, which seems to be a reasonably safe spot. Well, that was a bit of a surprise, Patrick. Yeah, no, it's quite dramatic stuff. Um, it does seem that there is something incoming because there was a big uh, puff of what looked like anti-missile artillery in the sky, pretty much just at, one, at about 11 o'clock to where we were sitting. So uh, yeah, it looks like it's a real event. Okay, so we're just going to hang out here and follow what the locals do, basically. I mean, more people are coming in all the time. Not, not panicking, I mean, working, walking purposefully, I think is the best way of expressing it. Um, 
no one running, but, but walking quite quickly. Uh, and the underpass is now filling up. That's the underpass just at the end of the Maidan uh, Independence Square. Okay, we're going to take a quick break now. Join us after that to hear what was both a fascinating and emotional interview with an American we met whilst we were sheltering from Russian missiles. Okay, we've just heard the cancellation of the air raid siren, which means, uh, in effect, they're all clear, and we've all filtered back out of the underpass. But before we did, uh, we met an American who says he's a captain in the Ukrainian army, and he's agreed to give us an interview. So we're going to do that in a few minutes. But he also made the point that uh, the underpass probably wasn't the best place to go with incoming missiles because the uh, rather thin roof, which was in effect the roadway above, would just collapse quite easily. Better to be in the open, so he claimed, but I'm not sure I entirely agree with that. Anyway, we'll be chatting to him in a few moments. Okay, so just to set the scene, we're in Independence Square and about 15, 20 minutes ago, we were in the underpass taking cover from uh, what was obviously some kind of incoming missile or incoming Russian fire, as we've already briefly mentioned. And while we were down there, uh, we came across an American who's fighting for the Ukrainians. So tell us your name, a little bit about your background, particularly in the military and how you ended up in Ukraine. Well, my name is Joshua Darnell and I'm from the great state of Tennessee in the United States. I've got a little bit of history with the military, but the bottom line is it has been a great honor for me to serve here in the Ukrainian army. So what's the time scale? I mean, you, you've already briefly mentioned to us that you were here pretty much from the beginning. not March not quite. 15th. March 15th. So what was the, uh, what was the motivation and, and the sequence of events that led you to Ukraine? Well, it's part of our identity as Tennesseans to volunteer, especially when there's bullies around. Russia is the largest country in the world. I think Ukraine is like 44th or 45th. We knew from the start this wasn't going to be a fair fight. And when we, we became aware, I became aware, that children and older people were being attacked, I knew it was the right decision. Okay, so you're one of the earliest volunteers. You came out here. You obviously had military experience. You joined up. You signed up. You volunteered for the Ukrainian army. Well, yes. Uh, there was a whole bunch of us in those first couple of weeks it was a totally different world here during that time mm -hmm. i mean rough estimates it was four to five russians to every one ukrainian so anybody that could jump in we used to say if you can pull a trigger you're in can you set the scene a little bit you arrive as you say in the middle of march the full-scale invasion has happened a couple of weeks before that three weeks before that and i think the world now knows that the russians begin pulling back at the beginning of april so you're right in that sort of key period where the city this massive and incredibly beautiful city of kiev which apart from the air raid siren and uh, a little bit of gunfire earlier on seems relatively peaceful at the moment, but it must have been a very different city then. Well, it was a different place then. Um, several times I told our men that make sure you have all your contacts ready with your family. Make sure you express your love for everyone. I didn't personally expect to make it through the Battle of Kiev. Most of my men did not. And so it was a great thrill that I can't communicate to have survived it is the truth. 
Tell us a little bit about your unit, Joshua, and uh, the nationalities, the different nationalities wow. of the guys in it. What a great question. And I love sharing it because we were truly an international unit. We had a young man from South Africa. And any names that I would give is a call sign. So it's not, I'm not giving away names. Um, Blue was from Germany. I had two guys from Sweden, uh, one gentleman from France who did not make it. A whole bunch of Americans, <laughs> about half a dozen Americans, uh, two or three Marines, one gentleman from Turkey who was a medic. Oh, three Brits. Oh, Honey Badger. I, I just said farewell to one of my Brit brothers uh, two weeks ago, uh, a little bit further east from here, coming back through. Can you say the name of the units and how it fits into the Ukrainian order of battle? Well, I can tell you it's 3531 is the unit number, but I don't want to sound conspiratorial, but it was one of those small units that had specific tasks. And uh, I know Tristan and some of the guys are going to kick my butt if I say too much, but it, I know it sounds all James Bondy. But bottom line is, during that time period, everybody had something to do to hold the line. It may be intelligence to take out a bridge. It may be making sure the block points are straight. It may be going on in the butcher in the middle of the night. There's all kinds of things that we did, and that's the truth. And I'm honored to be a small part of it. Tell us a little bit about the last uh, 18 months, basically, since you've been here. Um, I'm, I'm guessing you've been with that unit in and out of combat operations during that whole period. You, you're getting a little bit of R&R now. You're back for a couple of days in Kyiv, but you're heading out again to join the unit soon, aren't no, you? No, I just came back. I'm heading home to see my, my grandson, Leo. Uh, he's a week old. I can't wait to see my only grandson. So no, I'm going home for a while. I don't, I've, I've been here. In fact, several weeks ago, I helped three Aussies and a an American from Georgia, from the state of Georgia, kind of get acclimated, and I felt full circle, like I, I, the way they felt. I mean, they didn't know how to get around in the city or in Lviv, and bottom line is, um, I am honored to serve, but I think it's time for me to go home. Okay, so this is, this is the end for you now. You, it you is the end from a military standpoint, but once a war gets in you, I don't think it ever gets out of you. I want to be of help in some way, shape, or form, but I'm 50 years old. And during those early months, it didn't matter how old you were. We all jumped in. Everybody do whatever you can. But now it's just so good to see a, a younger crop of volunteers that are coming in. It's good to see that. Last couple of thoughts, Joshua. Um, you mentioned before we started recording that, uh, you know, one of the issues, particularly for international soldiers volunteering and coming here, is there's no obvious support for them once they come out of the line. And you know, I, I can tell by the sort of emotion in your voice that it's something you feel very strongly about. So how are you, what are you going to do to help that? Well, I'm not really, as an older fellow, I'm not real good at a thousand contacts like some of the younger soldiers are, but I sure have a bunch of those guys that are, I'm in contact with, a whole bunch of them. We're starting something called the International Veterans Association. Lord willing, we'll have a website up in September. Its whole purpose is to help the guys when they come off the field and to honor the guys when they come off the field with some sort of something to give them a little closure because being a soldier is not everything you are in life and at some point you have to turn the, the page. It's a part of your life. Um, I just wanna say two things maybe in closing. I've never seen anything like the spirit of the Ukrainian people. So stalwart, so resolved. And I've been honored to witness that. And then secondly, 
I'm so thankful that Kiev is here where we can have this recording. I thought that the only major language would be Russian at this point, so I'm so thankful. Last thoughts, Joshua. The, um, we've been talking a lot on the podcast and uh, encouraging, of course. We've made no bones about where our sympathies lie in this conflict, as indeed anyone of their right mind in the West would, would have the same attitude. We were very optimistic a few months ago that the so-called Ukrainian counteroffensive was going to make big gains uh, sooner or later. Are you still pretty convinced that the Ukrainians can win this war militarily? I'm convinced we can win the war militarily if there is great patience, but there must be patience in a war. Our general that leads a Ukrainian army thinks of our men first rather than victory, and that is honorable. But as far as the West, if you're talking about my country, the United States of America, we need to change the dialogue. The dialogue should not be about what is in our best interest. It should be about what is our identity. The American identity is freedom, democracy, and sacrificing for that, not just for ourselves, but for everybody around the world. I know people don't want the Americans to be the police. The truth of the matter is a Tennessee boy, I don't care. But if the French wouldn't have helped us in the Revolutionary War, then we wouldn't be America. And the Ukrainians need us. And when I mean us, I'm, the America's true, but the whole world. So I beg the world to continue to help Ukraine. And then after the war, come and see what your investment was. The children, the babuskas, the people, the places, the flowers. Ukraine is immeasurably beautiful. I mean, we've only been out here for a few days, Joshua. Um, the real reason we wanted to come after a year of, of discussing and analyzing and, and supporting the conflict is we want to see it on the ground. We wanted to get a sense of what you're talking about, the Ukrainian spirit. And it is coming through. I mean, what's beautiful about Kyiv is the way people are going on with their lives, even when scary stuff is happening all around them. Because although they've probably got used to it, there's obviously an underlying sense of tension, you know, which is going to be taking its toll on a whole nation. And uh, I was just thinking to myself yesterday that what a country to come to, you know, for my wife and children, yes. probably not until after the yes. conflict is over, yes. to be truthful. But nevertheless, um, I, you know, let's hope that once it's safely under the protection of NATO in the future, we'll all be coming here and, yes. and supporting this great nation. Very, very last thought, Joshua. Um, you mentioned before, of course, that the war has taken its toll on the Ukrainian army generally, but it's also taken its toll on your unit in particular. Can you tell me just in general terms a little bit about the sort of casualties you've yes. taken well my half my units either is gone either out of the field casualtyed out um, a number of my men did not make it when people talk about heroes those are the men that i think of just a few hours ago i went up to the wall which is right next to the beautiful blue orthodox church behind me there's a wall of remembrance there when I first got here, nothing to the right of the entrance was there. There were no photographs of any soldiers, men or women, that served and sacrificed. But now the wall has no more space. And so, and there was a, another soldier there, and I was standing there, and I walked up to that Ukrainian soldier, and I gave him a thousand grivnas, and he looked at me and said, no, I won't take it. And we hugged, and he didn't want any money. He just wanted me to look at him and say, paramoha, which means no matter what, victory. And then we, 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 we left each other. Bottom line is, um, this is an honorable cause. 
this is an honorable cause. Thanks so much for talking to us, Joshua. Thank you. So we've just driven to the north of Kiev to meet Colonel Kazan. He's going to take us to his military base. Uh, but on the way, we had an interesting chat with a taxi driver because uh, he was asking us whether we'd seen the missile um, earlier today. And we said, yes, of course we had. And we asked him what it was. And he said it might have been a Kinzhal. And we asked what knocked it out of the sky because we actually came through the district in which it came down. And he said, possibly... Uh, we thought it might be Patriot, and he said, well, maybe, but the actual even more sophisticated system that they're using now apparently is French-made, and he thinks it might have been one of those. So just a little interesting bit of info from the taxi driver. Well, as you heard, we were on our way to meet Colonel Hazan next, so please do join us next week for our interview with him and to hear what else we got up to. <laughs> <laughs>